Hi, welcome to Real Shit with Shayna. I'm your host, Shayna Zadie. I thank you for coming on this journey with me as I have raw combos with my friends, family, and young thought leaders. Real Shit with Shayna is a space that supports finding true strength in vulnerability. No more fake news or about you bios. This is not the 30 second version of anyone. Just diverse people talking about real lived experiences, helping us find healing and promoting mental well-being because trust me, you are not alone. I promise you will leave feeling inspired, motivated, and sometimes a little provoked. Are you ready? It's time to get real. All right, so my next guest needs no introduction, but I'll give you one anyways. Jaron Smith, born and raised in Chino Hills, California. He attended UCLA and Howard University for undergrad. He went on to earn a Master's of Science from Columbia University with a focus on digital resource management. He didn't stop there and furthered his education even more at Georgetown University for a master's degree in sports marketing. Whew. Jaron is a former college athlete with experience working for Nike, Jordan Brand, Stephen Curry, President Obama at the White House, and now is the CEO of a multimedia company backed by Sony Pictures Studios fittingly named Unanimous Media. He is a father of two, a loving husband, and my great friend. It is truly my pleasure to welcome Jerron Smith to the show. Yo, yo, yo. (laughs) I feel like this episode is going to be filled with laughs because this is taking you out of your business element and being real with me. So I appreciate that. And uh, just to kick things off, we'll start how we even met and how long ago that was. It was um, all the way back freshman year at uh, FSP, which was freshman summer program at UCLA. So why did you choose UCLA? Oh, man. That's a that's a good question. So, I mean, man, this is real shit with Shana. So might as well give you the real. So why did I choose UCLA? So definitely wanted to play basketball because there's a few things. One, UCLA was recruiting um, an individual at my high school. And so most of the pack at the time it was the Pac-10. They used to come and recruit him. And I used to, you know, to whatever coach that would listen at like one of the major programs, I would say, you need to be recruiting me. And they'd be like, ah. You know, they're always like, you know, you could be recruited walk-on or something like that, right? Because um, most of the high majors weren't recruiting me. So um, I did always want to play at UCLA. I thought it was like an amazing school to to play at. I was five three going into my junior, going into my junior year of high school, and then I graduated my senior year at six four. So I grew thirteen inches really quick. So you know, there's a lot of individuals that play basketball that always say, you know, five six five, I'd be in the league right now, and I was like. And I used to say the same stuff, too, you know. And then next thing I know, I woke up and then, you know, I'm 6'4". And it was, uh, it was, you know, so at that point, there was no telling me I wasn't a top five draft pick. So um, now at that juncture, I had to figure out, okay, what was the best pathway for me? I'm like, I felt like I was a high major player. But because I grew so late, it was, you know, some of these high major coaches were a little slow to recognize my abilities. So there was one piece of the, there was the basketball piece. 
Then at my high school, um, man, I played at like UCLA, SC, Cal, Columbia, Harvard, Stanford, Princeton, and like UC Irvine. UC Irvine was like my safe school. And then, you know, I got into like Irvine, UCLA, USC, Cal, got into Columbia, I uh, got rejected at Harvard, got rejected at Princeton, got rejected at Stanford, right? Mm -hmm. So then I was like, all right, it was kind of between UCLA and USC for me. And 13 students at my school got into USC and eight got into UCLA. So I was like, mm. I was like, UCLA feels a little bit more elite. So I was like, that was one nudge. I flipped a coin. It was heads, heads was for UCLA. That was another nudge. And then I wanted to play at UCLA. So I was like, I'm going to UCLA. Wait, so, wait, wait. <laughs> you literally flipped a coin? Yeah, I was in my bedroom. I was having a hard time trying to figure out, like, what to do. Like, um, I think my mom, my mom was more UCLA, Cal. My dad wanted me to go to Naval Academy because Naval Academy was recruiting me. UPenn was recruiting me. Mm -hmm. He wanted me to just go play basketball. I'm like, Dad, I'm a high major player, you know? So... <laughs> So I need to be a high major school. So I was having trouble with the UCLA USC thing, and then I, yeah, I flipped the coin, and and all signs were pointing me towards UCLA. So that, that's amazing. That's like how I ended up at UCLA. Well, yeah. I feel like it's so important to share that story for many reasons, and one being that you could have went to a school to play basketball right away, and yet essentially oh, yeah. bet on yourself by going to as you as you describe it, you know a more major athletic school so that way because you felt that you were deserving to play there yeah there's there's some ignorance there too like I I don't know if I really recognize the value it's, it shows how important your inputs are and it's like you know my dad always talked about athletic scholarships right my whole mm -hmm. life like you know for the majority of my life he would wake us up at 5 a.m we go to the gym before school my brother and I we would work out and then we would go to school and then after school, you know, we go lift, whatever. Like we mm -hmm. were very regimented. I was just short. And it was just like scholarship, scholarship, scholarship. So when I started being recruited in my head, I had, you know, UCLA, North Carolina, <laughs> like I had these major schools in my head. So when smaller D1 started recruiting me, I don't know if I realized how hard it was to be recruited by a school on any level, D1, D2, D3, like, to be offered a full athletic scholarship is a very, it's a rare club and it's very unique. And um, I just had my, my head set on this. Like, I just thought I was, I just believed in my abilities. Yeah. So, I mean, so. we'll get in later how that's just a testament to all your hard work and where it's taken you so far, okay. but to humble you first um, and okay. go a little okay. bit, a little bit backwards. So then you go yeah, to UCLA and yep. um, technically, uh, you were not a black athlete on campus because you're, <laughs> although you're an athlete and yeah, as we correct. just discussed, you were trying to walk on, um, yeah, but, sure. but you so badly wanted, you know, to be at UCLA, to be playing at UCLA and the athletes walking around had a backpack and that's what oh, signified God. them yeah, being an sure. athlete. So I know you wanted that backpack mostly because you were working out to walk on the team, 
but there were other reasons. And starting with, do you think that like the race and identity played a part in it? Because most people stereotyped Ooh. you to be an athlete and that you weren't Ooh. technically officially one. So that kind of put you in that club, having that backpack. Was yeah, that possibly a reason? <laughs> yeah, I think we're getting deep early. I mean, it's interesting, right? Like I talk about, um, you know, I grew up in, you know, predominantly white neighborhoods and predominantly white schools. All of my second high school was predominantly Asian. And, um, and but like my experience, I, I kind of hung out and stuck with people that look like me at those schools for the most part. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, man, I think the journey of like race and identity was, is such an interesting one. Um, especially once you get to college and you're uh, a tall black male. I think in our freshman class, there were like 11 or maybe 12 non-athlete black males in that, in that class. If I, if I remember correctly, I could be, I could be um, misquoting. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, and, you know, shout out to D Smoke and Daniel Ferris. That was one of them, you know? Yep. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, just going to talk, mention him. And you mentioned about the number because that was like a sad joke that was going on. Um, yeah. because you literally could count how many male African-American students yeah. there were on campus that were not athletes. And he did even, there was a movement. I think that's where he started and even did like, a. I want to find that YouTube video because yeah, like you know, I was just that. talking about that video when he was yeah. going like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that one was, that one was passionate. I got it. We got to find that. Yeah, that's a good one. No, no, that's real. Um, I think. I mean, on a more service level, that's just what I felt like I identified. That's like, was, that was more of my identity. Um, I remember hating finals week because nobody would be hooping in the, um, in the wooden center. I'd be like, dude, like, I'm like, I need to get some work in. Like, what are we talking about? Everybody's studying. Like, and, you know, I think uh, from a like-minded standpoint and the way I was going about my college experience, it was more resonant and aligned more that direction, but I think at a big school like UCLA and being, you know, 17, 18, 19, 20, trying to find your identity, yeah, those blue backpacks were, um, were they were more than a backpack for sure. Yeah, it's crazy how, how much they symbolize. But were there any interesting stories that maybe you had by people mistaking you for being oh. actually a UCLA yeah, athlete or being on the, the hoop team? I think all the time. And I think uh, at the time it didn't offend me at all. Now when people like think um, this or that, I'm like, okay, why? Why do you think? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I don't know that serious. But at the time I definitely like, I, um, I definitely embraced it for sure. Uh, but you know, it's a, it's a rarity to look like I do and, and be there just as a student. You know, especially especially back then, because there's so few of us. Mm -hmm. So um, it was natural for people to think, um, you know, that's what I was doing when you know I went to UCLA on an academic scholarship and and um, you know I was there to be a student. I mean, I, I wanted to I wanted to hoop and go to the league, but I was there to be a student. So yeah. it's just funny. So. It's just funny to to talk about and share that perspective because a lot of people don't know that you even went to UCLA for that freshman year and then just how different your experience was. In, freshman and sophomore year. Oh, yeah, exactly. And how different your experience was during that time than when you transferred to Howard. So mm -hmm. you ended up transferring and playing out a successful basketball career at an HBCU 
and mm -hmm. undoubtedly that was different and still to this day people don't understand how many schools are terribly lacking diversity as we talked about how, how you were sure. counting yourself as a number and just people are just not aware of that but yeah. take me back to then that night when you decided you wanted oh, to man. leave ucla and so, how howard came into the play yeah so upenn was recruiting me in high school and that I was, I actually let, I actually went on a visit to UPenn while I was at UCLA. And um, when they were, when they were recruiting me in high school, that wasn't, I didn't mind, I didn't mind playing at Ivy League, but if I was going to play in Ivy League, I wanted to play at Harvard. Mm -hmm. And then I was mad at Harvard because they, I didn't, I wasn't, they didn't admit me, but anyway, all good. So, um, you know, the coach at UPenn was like, hey, so you're not playing. You know, I took a visit out there, played with the team. It was great. It was awesome. The associate head coach at the time, Gil Jackson, was the one that was recruiting me. And he was like, hey, I'm about to get a head coaching job. Would you be interested in coming with me to start my program? I was like, you know, I'm a dreamer. So I'm like, shoot, where are you about to be coaching at, Duke? Like, where, <laughs> like, where, are, we, where are we going? Um, and he gave me a list of schools. Howard wasn't on that list. And they all sounded pretty good to me. And um, then and, – and you want to be – you want to play for a coach that really wants you, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, at the time he was talking about his relationship with the Philadelphia 76ers and all that kind of stuff. And I was sold. So one by one, he tells me, okay, this job didn't work out. That job didn't work out. And then he calls me one day and he's like, Hey, I ended up um, getting a head coaching job. Um, at Howard. And I was like, Hey coach, man, you've always been good to me, man. I wish you the best of luck there, man. <laughs> you know, do your thing, man. You kill it, man. He was like, man, think about it for a second. Let me know. I was like, I already knew what my answer was, but all good. So I used to stay on campus over the summer and work on the front desk of the dorms, you know, because they give you, they let you stay there for, free. well, they deduct it from your hours, but it lets you live there and you get a meal plan. And I used to do that so I could work out. And I used to have the 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. shift with the, with the individual named Marvin. And we're, we're, working, <laughs> we're working the 3 a.m. shift. And I'm telling him about, you know, the coach at Harvard. I mean, at, uh, at Howard. And he's like, oh, that's amazing. He's like, congrats, man. You're going to Howard. You're about to be hooping at Howard. I was like, I'm not going, man. He was like, well, what do you mean? I was like, yo, this, this might be my, my year right here, you know? In my head, I only needed one year playing at UCLA, and I was off to the league, like off to the draft. Like <laughs> this is what was in my head. I don't know what was wrong with me, but anyway, I was like, "This is my year right here." And he was like, "Jerron, it's 3 a.m. We're working the front desk of the dorms. UCLA basketball is not thinking about you, man. Like they're not thinking about you at all." He was like, "You need to go to Howard," and I was like, "Ah, oh, I don't know." And then UCLA had a quarterback. Um, a backup quarterback named Osar at mm -hmm. the time. And I grew up with Osar and his dad, I guess through my dad got wind that about this Howard situation. And he called me one night and he was on the phone with me for like two hours explaining to me the historical significance and the legacy of Howard university. Wow. And what it meant to be a part of that legacy and a part of that school and the significance and I mean, he laid it on, like he, he went deep, mm -hmm. um, he went deep. And I was like, wow, okay, okay. 
It was like, okay, I'm going to go. And I called the coach, told him I'm going to come. And then two weeks later, I'm on a plane. I had never been in D.C. in my life before. I had never seen Howard University before. Wow. Uh, I don't even know. I, I might have, I didn't spend much time on the East Coast in general. I like, I didn't know, like the weather, the whole thing. Like it was a complete, I'm, I'm a Cali kid, like through and through. So it was definitely a culture shock for me. But one of the, one of the best decisions I've ever made. Yeah. And I think it's just so important to share that because it's like you went from being having the mindset of like one and done, like you're one and done to the league, but at the same time going to a school for academics because you got in for academics, not for your actual talent in basketball. And then you end up getting two masters and continuing your education well beyond your undergrad. So obviously education was still very important to you. Um, and how important was it in your journey? It's funny. I mean, part of the journey was figuring out the significance of education. And mm-hmm. that process started for me at Howard. I always say, you know, I was, um, I was always pretty smart. And, I, you know, the belief system I grew up on was like, you get good grades and then you get a good job. You know, go to college, get a degree, come out making a lot of money. And yeah. as we all know, that's going to be further from the truth. But at UCLA, that was my mindset. I was just like, all I got to do is get a degree and, and we're good. Mm-hmm. And um, when I went to Howard, I always say there were always people running around the School of Business and I could not understand it for anything. Because I was like, you know, once again, just get good grades and it's all good. Right. And then I finally uh, stopped somebody. I was like, hey, where are you going? And they're like, I'm going to the CEO speaker series. And they're like, I was like, oh, where is that? They're like, you can't go like that. You got to have a suit on. So I had to run back to my dorm, get my suit. When I went into the auditorium, it was like completely packed with students. Everybody was prepared. Everybody had questions for the CEO. Every, and I was like, what the heck is going on here? Like, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I remember a student having a question about an acquisition the CEO had made that morning. And the CEO was from Credit, Credit Suisse. And he was the youngest CEO on Wall Street. I was like, yo, like, what's, what is going on? They're like, you know, everybody's trying to get an internship, this, that, and the other. And I was like, and I remember that summer applying for the Nike internship, not getting it. And then another student got it. And I remember watching, looking at her Facebook that summer, and it looked like she had the most amazing internship. Mm-hmm. We came back to school. Everybody had made all this money at their internships. Most, most people interning on Wall Street. And I was like, whoa, that's when I was like, yo, joke's on me, right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow. So I had to humble myself, ask for help. And then the next summer, I got the Nike internship. And that's when I was like, wow, this is the dopest job I've ever had. I can't believe they pay people to do this. Like, this is stuff I would have been volunteering to do anyway. Like, right. it was amazing. And I came back to school. I had, you know, money in my pocket. It was, it was, it was, it was incredible. That's when I was like, whoa, if they pay people to do jobs like that, that's where I need to work. I always said, I didn't know you could be in the league without being in the league, you know? Mm. And um, so I always say, you know, definitely value education. But the reason I think I did so much school after undergrad was because I was waiting on Nike to hire me. <laughs> but I messed it up myself. See, I'm going to tell you, these hoop dreams are detrimental because there was an individual in the Chicago, I interned in the Chicago office. And as I was leaving, he said, hey, you did a great job this summer. We want to help you find a job here. And I was like, hey, man, I really appreciate that. But I'm going to the league, man. Um, So, you know. You did not tell him that. 
Oh man, I get made fun of for this to this day. Like I was like, I'm going to the league. Like, and even when I started working at Nike, finally, probably three and years after that, um, they say, "Hey, you still trying to go to the league?" Like it was like a it was like a running joke. Like it was bad. It was bad. Well, well, yeah. Jumping to Nike, then one of my favorite stories about you, and one of like proudest friend moments, and probably because like. I'm obviously ball is life basketball junkie myself is that during the lockout you created this campaign the basketball never stops that yeah. is still used to this day for different things and it was huge and the way that you push that along is just yeah. amazing and it just shows again the belief in yourself and just how to not do things traditionally and just to go go with it so how did basketball never stops come about? Yeah, I mean, I definitely didn't do it the right way, but it wasn't intentional or malicious, right? Mm -hmm. It was more a function of not having been at the company a long time and not understanding the proper systems and processes, you know? And at this point, I call it corporate PB&J, which is, which is an acronym for process, bureaucracy, and jams. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was supposed to go through. But I didn't know the system well enough to know there was, there was so much process that I was bypassing and trying to get this thing, um, get this thing through. But there was a lockout and uh, essentially um, uh, myself and another young colleague of mine that worked in New York um, named Chad, uh, we had saw this brief. They were, um, it was like a advertising brief for Wyden and Kennedy. Mm -hmm. And on the brief, you explain, you explain the background for of the creative concept that you're that you're briefing the agency to create right mm -hmm. and kind of in the you know so you you have tone you have kind of the overview objective and like kind of in the, the background section it was like hey we're in an nba lockout but the lockout doesn't stop the fans love for the game the players are still working out the plans the players still love the game um basketball is a ever is a constant um you know the game never stops basketball never stops and we plan to keep you know empowering our player you know all that mm -hmm. when we saw basketball never stops we're like yo like that's it basketball never stops like mm -hmm. and it was like for me it was like a no-brainer it was like how could it not be you know it, it would be like when you when you see all the samples at nike and you see the shoe that's the shoe you're like yeah. there's nothing more to talk about that's the shoe like that's gonna go like what like, I might not have the language to explain, you know, upper, midsole, outsole, materials, fly wire, all the tech, but that is the shoe. You know what I mean? I don't, right. I don't know what else to tell you. So when I saw basketball never stops, it was like, whoa, that's it. Like, so I was like, basketball never stops. Like, let's, let's rock and roll. So my colleague and I, we start trying to figure out how to get this thing rocking and rolling. So, you know, we're, we're reaching out to any executive that will listen. And we found this executive and we're explaining the whole plan. And he was like, no, I was like, well, well, what do you mean? No. And at the time there were these lockout games, right? So we were like, Hey, they're going to have this lockout game in DC. It's going to be Goodman league versus Drew Lee. We threw the basketball never stops, you know, whole campaign. Boom, boom. He was like, no. And we are like, but, but why? <laughs> why? No, no, I don't understand. And he was like, yeah, not unless you want to get fired. Like he was going crazy on us, right? Like, okay, cool, 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 cool. So 
we're in a global IMM and the um, the SVP at the time of, of global marketing was like, hey, I'm hearing these lockout games are happening. Um, what, what are we doing for these? And the guy that told me no was in the meeting. He was like, oh, um, Jerron has a plan for that. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, okay, I do have a plan, but I'm not about to come back and ask if that includes basketball never stops. I'm about to just take that as a yes. And at the time my boss was on sabbatical. So I called my boss to let him know what was going on. I'm like, Hey, here's this thing, you know, basketball never stops. And he was like, I don't have no idea what you're talking about. The basketball never stops thing. Whatever you do, make sure there's a commercial payoff, right? So mm -hmm. make sure you're launching a product and that you can show the success of whatever you're doing through right. revenue numbers. I was like, cool. How do I make sure there's a commercial payoff? And he was like, okay, go to, uh, what was her name? Uh, there, it was like the head of sales and merchandising or something. I was like, hey, what products are in the pipeline? Can we move up the launch date? I couldn't care less about this product, honestly. But I'm like, <laughs> whatever, whatever I need to do to make you all happy. And then we moved up. It was the KD, I think it was the KD3 at the time. KD3 scoring champ. It was like this white shoe with orange accents to celebrate his scoring title. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we launched it like House of Hoops or Foot Locker or something. It like sold out in like five seconds. I'm like, cool, commercial payoff, check. All right, you know, 100% sell through. You got it. it. Yeah, good to go, you know, onto this basketball never stops thing. And, you know, Kev, so, oh man. So work with the digital social team, had the shirts, you know, doing the whole thing. And the only one that was really, not really bothered by me trying to push this basketball never stops thing was Kevin Durant. And Kevin Durant was like, mm. man, he was just the dopest dude. You know, he was just like, he just wanted to hoop, man. You know, and he was just like super cool. And, um, you know, he had put on the shirt, Drew League didn't want to wear him. And, um, but how did you make the shirt? How did it even get to be oh, yeah, yeah, making yeah, yeah, okay, the shirt? Okay, that part of the story. Actually, I'm going to get to that in a second. <laughs> okay, okay. I'm going to get to that in a second. So, um, so uh, he wears a shirt, boom, snaps this iconic image of him, and it ends up in Sports Illustrated, right? Mm -hmm. You know, Kevin, you know, the whole deal, you know, and the whole, I feel like the title of the article was Basketball Never Stops. He had on the tee. It was going, mm -hmm. it was starting to like really gain a groundswell. So we're in our global IMM and that same SVP was like, you know, who did this? Like, who did this? He had the magazine. I was like, who did this? Mm -hmm. And, you know, everybody, everybody knew who did it. Um, but, but they thought I was in, in trouble. And I actually might have been. I don't know. I, I might have been in trouble. So the individual that told us no originally was like, Jerron did it. And he was like, that's how you react to a moment. That's how you take a moment, you be nimble, you be flexible, and you react to the moment. And he like gave me a lot of praise, right? Mm -hmm. But I still wasn't out of the water. He was like, so um, so so who made these shirts, Jerron? I was like, oh, you know, um, so the guy that was, you know, uh, my, my colleague, he had, he knew a, a t-shirt printer in New York. So I was like, hey, we, we found this guy in New York and he printed the tees for us you know? And, um, he was like, okay, really, really. Right. And he's like, looking at me like this, really? And I'm like, yes. He was like, so, so you had 
um, Nike tees printed in somebody's garage. And I was like, and everybody starts laughing, right? Everybody in the room. This is such a, this is such a crazy story when I think about it. So everybody starts laughing. All these executives in the room start laughing at me, right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm like this. I'm like, no, 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 no. I was like, I don't, I don't think he did it in his garage. <laughs> I'm taking the moments so seriously. I'm like, no, no, no. I don't think he did it in the garage. So they, then they start really cracking up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the truth of the matter is like, you know, I mean, I, you know, had to come up with the, with the creative file I knew nothing about. I, I'll just say it wasn't made on Illustrator. <laughs> uh, and You actually designed the shirt. Even. Yeah, but not in a design program. <laughs> and let's just say the 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 copy was in aerial font, you know. So if you look at those first basketball never, never stops these, like mm-hmm. you look like from like the beginning, you'll see aerial font like basketball never stops. So that was crazy. But then it ends up going like taking off, and um, you know LeBron starts playing in these lockout games. Everybody starts playing in these lockout games. You know the anthem of the lockout was basketball never stops. Wow. Nike on the moment, and that ended up being like a real accelerator for me for sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's crazy. That's why when people probably ask you, like, how, what path did you take to get where you are? It's just, it's just so interesting to see that there is no linear path. Like, I feel like you're a prime example for that. Like, you could be thinking one way and it leads to a different door. You could be on one path and then something else opens up. But to like, I guess definitely trust your gut in both, both situations we talked about from, you know, going to Howard to now creating basketball never stops at Nike like do do you feel like you just really trust your gut or do you listen heavily around other people what's your north star what's your guiding light Mm. I'm definitely not good at listening to people I think Mm. um I try to learn from others experiences though um Mm. I always feel like when you're taking in advice from others um I feel like everybody's a victim and biased to their own experience Mm. so I try to do the juxtaposition against what I'm being told and and their own personal experience and making sure I'm not over indexing on what they're saying, because what they're saying, you know, it's, it's predicated on what they've been through. So, but at the same time, there's a lot of learnings and other, and other individuals experiences. But, um, honestly, I I try to do the right thing and trust God to do the rest, you know, like Mm -hmm. making sure, you know, I'm not doing anything malicious or whatever the case might be, but, you know, knowing there's no right answer, um, Mm -hmm. If you just sit there and follow the rules all the time, like, you know, you know where the rules get you, but you right. also can't go around breaking all the rules either, you know? So I think that's the reason why there's like very successful people out there is because they have mastered the gray area and mm. they can thread the needle and have that, you know, that precision. Cause no, no one can tell you how to be successful, right? They can't tell you, cause it's never going to be always this way or always that way. It's always, you know, a combination of the two or somewhere in the middle or whatever. And how, you know, how do you become a free thinker and a strategic thinker to kind of take in all those inputs and figure out what makes the most sense for you in the situation you're in. And mm-hmm. I think it's always that juxtaposition against, you know, you, what you're doing and what you want to, you know, what your goals are and what you want to get out of life versus like who, who you are, what you look like, what your background is, where you come from and how people receive that. Right. So Mm -hmm. like you create, you, you as an individual, there's a unique set of circumstances, there's a unique equation 
for you. There's only one you, you know, right. and there's only your, your journey is unique to you. So how do you navigate that super unique journey? And yes, people are going to be able to give you inputs, right? People are going to mm -hmm. be able to say, I've been through X, Y, and Z, right? Mm -hmm. So, and it's like, I, I, you know, I think the most successful people are able to take in all those inputs, taking all those inputs, put it into the, you know, the brain algorithm and kind of spit out an answer that works, works for them and makes sense, makes sense for them. Mm -hmm. so. Wow. No, that's great advice. And leaning into your own journey, leaning into who you are, right? And a big part of that comes from growth and discovery. I'm sure oh, you're, you're still growing, you're still discovering who you are, who you want to be. Um, and as you navigate that, though, I feel like you're very strategic. So even though you're moving with, you know, going with the flow and moving with your what's in front of you and facing it as it comes, I feel like you're still very strategic from how you, how you present yourself, how you dress, uh, and does that have to do with how you know others may perceive you or does that have to do with who you really feel like you are or that you're becoming and how do each of them play a role in just you being drawn? Um, just trying to learn the game, right? Trying to learn mm -hmm. the game. I think it's always important to start with who you are and what your authentic self is, right? Right. And I think man, this is a sensitive topic, right? Mm -hmm. I think people uh, might over-index over mm -hmm. on authenticity. Now, let me qualify that though. Okay. It is important to know who you are, know self, and be your authentic self, right? Right. But you cannot negate and ignore the fact that you, as, especially in the corporate system, you are there to garner what a good friend of mine calls a DD-115, right? It's mm -hmm. Calls it the, the drug, the direct mm -hmm. deposit first and 15th, right? Mm -hmm. And because you want the DD-115, the direct deposit first and 15, mm -hmm. you are working within a system that has traditions, norms, spoken rules and unspoken rules and governance, right? Mm -hmm. And if your authentic self does not align with the culture of that organization, a negotiation has to take place. Not a real negotiation, not like a contractual mm -hmm. negotiation, but you're gonna to have to negotiate with yourself to figure out, all right, how am I supposed to move within this, within this framework, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, many people talk about bringing their authentic selves to work, and I think that's incredibly, incredibly critical. But you know, if you work the front desk at a job and that job requires you to wear a suit, tie, and, you know, and whatever, you're going to need to wear a suit and tie. You know what I mean? That's just, that's just what it is. And now that might be more of a spoken rule, right? At another job, you know, the former dress might be, I don't know, whatever it might be. And it might not be a, a, a rule, but that is the culture of that mm -hmm. organization. You know, your authentic self might say, I should be able to wear whatever to work because that's who I am and that's what it is. It's like, no, it's not always how it works, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think from my, um, uh, my style is definitely intentional, man. Mm -hmm. to, see, you only have all these questions cause you know me, but it's okay. I'm gonna get <laughs> into it. So, um, the, f oof, the first time, 
I think it's really valuable for I'm, people. So that's why it's yeah. interesting. So it's a good perspective. So, no, absolutely. I was a 5XT guy growing up, you know, mm -hmm. pro clubs, 5X down to the knees. Um, but, you know, I, there's a part of me that would say, hey, coming up high school, college, that was my most authentic form of dress. But it was, it was at, the, at the end of the day, if you really get into it, that was influenced by what was mm -hmm. around me and the environment I was in, right? Mm -hmm. So the culture of basketball, the culture of um, who I was hanging out with, right? The first time I was like, ooh, there was a major switch up. I was in grad school and I was on the East Coast, I was in DC and I kind of got on the khaki blue blazers wave. I was like, whoa, okay, what's going on here? Like, <laughs> I feel like this is a thing. Like, okay, let me, let me try to check this wave a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. And the dope thing about that wave for me is like, I'm a, I look a little interesting to be in khakis and blue blazers. So it actually, it was actually helped me to stand out a little bit more. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? And then when I got to Nike, this is crazy. So my whole thing, I'm like the khakis, blue, uh, I mean, the, the button-up khaki Kohan guy at Nike, right? Mm -hmm. and, and where that kind of came from, one, I like I, I liked the style personally, but, um, and, I, and I did want to distinguish myself, but there was a dude, um, a white guy, and he was like tatted up, right? Super tatted. He might have had tats on his neck, I don't know. And... Everybody was like, yeah, man, this dude's so creative. Nike guy. He was in, he was in design. Mm -hmm. Everybody swore he was so creative. I personally didn't think he was that creative. But <laughs> he looked creative, right? He right. looked the part. You know what I mean? He was, he just kind of had it going. You know what I mean? I was like, okay, this guy's clearly not that creative. I don't dig any shoe he designs. But I see why people think he's creative, right? right. So I'm like, okay. And that was probably when I really became aware of how aesthetic can, uh, can really affect perception and you mm -hmm. could use it to your advantage to, um, you know, they say dress for, not for the job you have, but for the job you want, right? Like, mm -hmm. and I think that's a real rudimentary way of referring to it, but it still has the essence of what I'm getting at. It's really like, you know, how, you know, aesthetic, how you, how people receive you, um, especially against, you know, who you are, right? Because mm -hmm. me as a black dude, the, the tatted up thing wouldn't have helped people receive me as creative. You, if, right. If, you know, it worked for him, right? Right. So what is that, what is that, what is that for me, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and that was important for me. So that was an important realization. Well, it's, it's helpful at least in, in you being authentic to you actually liking the style. It's just interesting no, sure. in how you also use that particular style to, you know, create that perception that you, that you hope to see from other people, you know, how they want, how you would want them to view you basically. And for sure. I feel like, you know, I'm a professional. Um, I feel like when I walk into a room, I want to communicate something specific mm -hmm. and, um, and that's who I perceive myself to be. Mm -hmm. And I want to make sure um, how I present myself, how I dress, um, reflects that. Yeah. And I know it is, is a more sensitive, especially, you know, to the given time, especially that you're, you know, a black man in LA, in entertainment, in business, and having to, we're talking about style and how you should be per perceived when you have all these degrees, 
Like what's inside your head, what's on your resume, like that should be enough. You, you shouldn't also have to wear, you could wear anything and it's, and it should be okay. You know what I mean? Like you've chosen to, to have a distinct style, to be strategic, to, you know, play the game, as you said, but you shouldn't have to. Like, does that ever sit with you or are you already so far beyond that, that you're just, you know, your podcast is definitely living up to its name. Okay. Okay. <laughs> oh man. Uh, yes. Okay. You shouldn't have to for sure. For sure. I think the same way a, a, a woman shouldn't think about, have to think about, you know, what she wears, you know, if she has a curvy figure or something like mm -hmm. that, like, you know, she, 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 like you should be able to wear what you feel comfortable in mm -hmm. and, um, et cetera. And I think most people think about, you know, how they're dressing, what they, how they're being received, et cetera. And I think, um, I think in a idealistic, um, situation, no, you wouldn't have to, you wouldn't have to think about those things, but ultimately I think when you walk in a room or when someone meets you, they're, they're going through it, right? Mm -hmm. It's churning, right? Like, okay, what are my thoughts about this person? You know, and especially if you're not operating from that position of power where, you know, you can walk in a room and be like, oh, okay, I don't need anybody in here. Mm -hmm. I think that's one thing. But mm -hmm. when you do, you need that advocacy, that partnership, um, resources, whatever the case might be. You definitely have to think about how you're being received. And I think that's a complicated and very nuanced thing to think about. Mm -hmm. So, but no, I think idealistically, no, you, you shouldn't have to think about those things. Well, thanks for sharing. I didn't mean to put you on the spot because no, I, mean, I, it's, it's, I know, I know you do are very strategic and it, and you're using it to your benefit. You know, that's why I felt like it was important to share it because you are so authentic. You have a very unique story. You have a unique journey. You have all the expertise and all the education, you know, that's that great about me, Jaron, that's on your LinkedIn, that's on all, you know, the lists, the Forbes lists and all the accolades you have. But, you know, the reason and the, the idea behind it is so much deeper. And I just feel like it's important to, to share that as we're talking and you're wearing your um, signature polo right now. You should get your own clothing <laughs> line. You know, that should be next. You should just make yeah, your own, make your it. own clothing line. And, um, you know, you, as much as you navigate this, you know, idea of how to present yourself and how do you show up in those meetings and how do you show up every day? You're very, very private and you, including being, uh, what do you have a blue check mark by your name on Instagram, but you probably have like 10 posts on there. Like you, you hardly share all of the, all of your experiences and what you're doing, but you did recently post one thing and um, it was making the distinction between you and another uh, Jerron Smith. And yeah. he works for a totally different president under a completely different administration. And you know, first of all, why was it so so important for you to make that distinction? And then tell us a little bit about your time yeah. at the White House. No, it's interesting. Um, it just got to the point where I needed to clarify, right? Like mm -hmm. it, it, from the beginning of the administration, it started off with someone um, that I 
was in the Obama administration with, and he was a White House fellow, and he was like, oh, you'll never believe it. Like, okay, so White House fellows, they were dual administration. They stayed uh-huh. for both. Okay. And um, he's like, there's a, there's, a, there's a guy named Jerron Smith that's here, and he went to Howard. I was like, no way. I'm like, there's no way. I'm like, oh, how ironic is that? It's crazy. Okay, all that. Yeah. And it just kept getting a little bit more serious, you know? And mm-hmm. I would have people reach out to me, you know, some news outlets, friends, you know, my mom, like, why did you say that on CNN? You know, and I was like, I was like, what? I'm like, or people tagging me, like, you know, all that stuff. It was just like constantly, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think he had said something that had everybody reaching out to me. And I was like, okay, let me make sure I make this distinction. I think it, you know, it was probably the frequency by which my mom was reaching out to me. Mm. Like, hey, so-and-so, one of her friends, wanted to know why you did this or did that. I'm like, what are you talking about? You know? Your own mom, so, that's crazy. Yeah, my own mom, it's crazy. So, yeah, I had to, I had to clarify that and, and just make sure people knew there was a distinction between the two Jerons that went to Howard University and have the same first and last, well, our first and last names are pr- pronounced very similarly and all that kind of stuff. So uh, important to clarify, um, I'm very, very um, big on just representing myself and what's representing me. Like, I'm just mm-hmm. so intentional about that. Like, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a big thing for me. And so there's nothing worse than, I hate getting in trouble when it's not on me, you know what right, I mean? And not right. to say like that situation got me in trouble per se, but mm-hmm. like, th- that's not something I, I like. Like, hey, why'd you do this? I'm like, I did it, you know? And then it's like, but that's on me. I'm like, oh, like that, that kind of, that's a thing for me. Nonetheless, um, no, time at the White House was amazing in a very hard, difficult and arduous way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I bet. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, I was working at I was working at Nike at the time, and they were actually going to hire a colleague of mine, but she was getting her MBA at Columbia, and kind of gave them my name. And they reached out to me, and I was like, "Whoa, I can't believe, um, I can't believe that's a thing. Um, like this is uh, this is possible." Mm-hmm. And you know, it was. Um, <sighs> I, at first I was like, I wasn't sure. Like I wasn't like, I was like, I was a little, I don't know if I've been thinking politics, but mm-hmm. uh, honestly it was my wife that was like, you got to do it, you know? So yeah. uh, I was like, okay. Uh, why, why was she like, it. why was she like, you're, you got to do it? Uh, I mean, it's knew. obvious to me, but I'm, why, why did she tell you you had to? I don't know. She just knew. She just knew, like super confidently, just knew. It was like, yo, you got to do it. And I was like, whoa, that's crazy. I was like, okay. Um, So then I really started to go down that road and, you know, I think I had five or six interviews, six months of background checks. It's called an SF-86. You know, they reach out to people from your childhood. I always like to tell this story that, you know, I think they start with like, I don't even know if I can say all this, but whatever. I think it started with like five names and then those five names get five names and so on and so forth. 
and the FBI meets with every individual in person. But when they call you, they say, hey, this is so-and-so from FBI office, whatever. I want to ask you some questions about Jerron. Is there a time we can meet? Mm-hmm. So they give them a time and then they call me and say, hey, man, FBI called me about you. Don't even worry <laughs> about nothing. Like, I'm not going to tell nothing. I got you, bro. Man, I got you. I'm like, what do you even think you're hiding? Like, what are we? I don't know. It was people's chance to. Yeah, show their loyalty. Like their loyalty or yeah. something. I don't know. So anyway, get through all that. Um, and, you know, one day I'm in Portland, Oregon. Next day I'm in Washington, D.C., walking through the White House gates. Like, it's crazy. Super surreal. Um, man. Uh, yeah, and you were in so charge of stories, but you were in charge of digital strategy, right? Or that was the area that you worked in at the White House in my Yeah, room? no, Office of Digital Strategy. Yeah, for sure. Office of Digital Strategy was deputy director. Um, you know, we worked on everything. Uh, we, you know, we always say we we're the first digital government. If you really think mm-hmm. about the history of the administrations and in the U.S., you know, and you know, obviously everything goes four to eight years and think about how much the country evolves and changes from a technological perspective every four to eight years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is being the first social media area, er, era of an administration. You know, we did consider ourselves the first digital government. President sent his first tweet, um, you know, in that administration. And so, so many like really unique things that transpired uh, from, a, from a digital, social, whitehouse.gov, um content perspective and it was amazing to be a part of history in a sense so that was awesome well obviously the presidency being part of the the administration of first black president ever like i was like oh my gosh mm-hmm. like is this real life like how man how did i become a part of part of this history like mm-hmm. most prolific administration 44 mm-hmm. the whole deal and then be a part of this digital government Right. And like that transition into the digital era from a government perspective. I'm like, how God? Wow. Like how? Yeah. <laughs> but, um, amazing. Very, very hard, hard job, but amazing. Well, yeah. And that's twofold. It's kind of a, you, as you're asking how I'm thinking that was a full circle moment. You know, you studied that you studied digital mm-hmm you know, digital marketing and particularly into how you applied it at the White House when you were at Columbia. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was published. So I was pu- I'm published in yeah. International Journal of Mobile Marketing. See, which there you go. It's hey. amazing, which I didn't even know I was published. I had like these companies reaching out to me about my research. And I was like, how do you know about this? They're like, well, you published in International Journal of Mobile Marketing. And I was like, no way. And I, I submitted it to the journal, but like, just because I put in so much work on this research, so I was like, I want to get something from it. <laughs> but they didn't tell me they they um <laughs> they didn't tell me they published it and you could buy it for nine dollars and eighty cents. So I was like, oh, that's amazing. And I only bring that up because it really was a proud moment for me. Like as someone who was always did well in school, but like I was trying to be the most accomplished as an athlete. Mm-hmm. that was a moment where I was like, yo, I'm published. Like that's pretty, yeah. that's pretty, that's pretty legit. I thought that was awesome. But yeah, no, I, I saw the onset of the digital world. As a matter of fact, my research, I think the first line of my research was the, the digital mobile to, uh, tsunami is coming. Why mm-hmm. aren't companies getting wet? 
right? Like, yeah, hey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so it was something I was aware of. I knew it was going to be my way in to Nike, um, or at least I was banking on it being like my my differentiator and my way into Nike. Because um, mm-hmm. this is like, I got to Nike in like 2009, 2010. Um, what, Instagram came in 2011? Mm-hmm. Facebook in 03, Twitter 06. You know, like this yeah. is all very, it was all very new. At the time, everything was Web 2.0. That was the thing. Web 2.0. <laughs> you could talk to and listen to your consumer. Like that was the thing. Like, yeah, you know, this two-way conversation. I'm like, it sounds so rudimentary now, but like it was definitely, it was definitely the way. I mean, obviously, congrats. I mean, it's still you get congratulations now because that's an amazing feat. And then just how you applied it to the White House is how different things were run during that administration than what we see today. You know, like you were in charge. You said, you know, you were part of it when the president sent his first tweet. Now we can't get the president to stop tweeting, you know? I mean, you were part of that. You were part of that, that that office, that administration, that history. And just like how to navigate and how you wanted to, you know, have that two-way conversation and from the leader of our country and to the, all of the American people. And just now, again, back to how you wanted to make that distinction because the other Jerron Smith works for our current administration for the Trump administration. And it's night and day as far as probably how you operated in that space. Yeah, it's definitely a different administration uh, ran completely differently. You know, I think as Americans, you know, this might be tough for some to digest, but like you really do want to see um, every administration do as well as possible because they sit in that seat and they sit in that, that white house building and you just hope and you pray for, things to go well, you know, mm-hmm. things to go well. It is a very, 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 very difficult job. And seeing it up close was, was mind blowing to me. And that, I don't say that lightly. I was mm-hmm. like, whoa, this might be the hardest job in the world. Um, it's a very difficult, difficult job. Um, and you have to be very prepared for it. I'll say one thing President Obama did that I thought was pretty amazing. It's like, the the talent and intellectual capital he had in that white house was like insane i've never worked in an environment like that i'm like i'm like not only was everybody like really decorated and you know super accomplished but no they 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 walked the talk you know what i mean mm-hmm. and they i mean so much talent in there like so much and I mean, you know me, I, it's not, that's not something I'm just like, oh yeah, you know, I don't, yeah. it's not something I just give to somebody. Like it was, it was, it was legit, but that's what's required too. That's what's needed. I think traditionally, given the way you're paid in government, it is hard to attract the best talent because, you know, if you're really, really smart or really, really talented or really, really good, you can probably be making a lot of money doing something else. Mm-hmm. And one thing President Obama did well was, you know, he, he, they were in there, you know, they were in there and they were, you know, they were dedicated to, you know, building a, um, you know, a better union, a great union. And, um, and we, we'd all, as we'd always say in the, in the Office of Digital Strategy, meeting, meeting the people where they are. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, I'll, I'll, 
I'll save you from getting too deep into politics. You know, I'll keep it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll keep it a little lighter, even though, as you said before, this is real shit with Shana. And actually, as you give credit to your wife for telling you you had to do it, I believe it was we were at a birthday party together and I was, I have to give her props too, because we were, I was sharing with her the concept for this podcast. And I believe she was the one who thought of the name real shit with Shayna. So, or that's it came right. out through the conversation and she was like, that's it or something of that nature. So I'll definitely have to have her on the podcast at some point with the, with your blessing, okay. of course. So uh, she's doing some really interesting things. That'd be pretty, pretty dope to talk about. Oh, okay, before we end it here, I do want to okay. allow you, because I wanted to go deeper into the White House, but I'll let you share a fun story of, which I think you're allowed to, when you flew on Air Force One. And yeah. they didn't, were you allowed to take pictures on there? Or how could you document that you were actually on Air Force One? Like, where's the proof? Who has, who were you able to tell? Or what happened when you got on that? On that plane. I don't have any pictures on the plane. I mean, they definitely told us not to take pictures, but I'm, you know, I'm sure people have taken pictures for us. I was acting scared. Uh, I should have just went for it. Uh, but, but you I, have you a know, better moment. You were able to do something else, right? I'll call my mom. Yes. Yeah. You know, everything about my life, Shana. That's great. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. So when I was confirmed, you know, they call it being on the manifesto, but when mm -hmm. I was confirmed to fly on the Air Force One uh, with the president, everybody was like, well, first my boss was like, call your, make sure you call your mom. And I was like, okay. It was one of those things where you kind of gloss over because you're like, what are you talking about? And mm -hmm. I'm just gonna assume I didn't hear you correctly or something. Like, I'm just still high off the fact that I get to fly on the Air Force One. Mm -hmm. So then someone else says it. I was like, what is this call your mom thing? But I don't want to ask. So just keep it moving. Mm -hmm. And then I get on the plane and I'm sitting across from the presidential videographer. His name is Adam Garber. Great, great, great guy. Mm -hmm. And Adam's like, we sit down. He's like, make sure you call your mom. I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm like, okay. I'm like, Adam, are you serious? He's like, yeah, I'm serious. I'm like, all right. So I'm like, cool. So pick up the phone and you know the operator picks up I'm like hey um, I need to make a phone call he's like give me the number <laughs> I'm so I'm like just waiting to get in trouble I'm just mm -hmm. like waiting I'm like this is a prank they prank everybody but clearly you guys are adamant about this prank and getting me so cool I'm gonna I'm gonna play along uh -huh. I'm just waiting for it to blow up my face so he goes one moment when I get um you know, the requested individual, I will give you a call back. So I don't know, 20 seconds go by, he gives me a call back. And my mom's like crying. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? And mm -hmm. she like was like, you know, she said they called her. They're like, hey, this is the Air Force One. We have White House personnel wants to speak with you. Wow. And that was like a real moment for her. Uh, it was a real moment for me. Goodness, it was fun on Air Force One. But uh, that's, I mean, it's crazy. Like it's, 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 it is real. It is really crazy when you, when you think about it. Um, and just, you know, my thoughts really sat with like just the history and the historical significance and who's all been on that plane and the conversations that, that have transpired on that plane, mm -hmm. um, et cetera. And, um, 
and it, you know, it was dope to like, you know, uh, share that moment with my mom. Uh, but yeah, and then I guess here's my other funny story that I haven't really told anyone. I'll give you an exclusive. Oh. Uh, but yeah, so on the way there, I think I had like a chicken sandwich and some chips and like a drink or something like that. I can't remember what I ate on the way back on the plane. Mm-hmm. But uh, when I was leaving the White House in January, I'm like turning in my government badge and everything. And they're like, oh, you have a, a bill you have to pay. I was like, for, for what? And give me this invoice. It was for my meal on the Air Force One. I'm like, what? We got to pay for this? I'm like, oh my God. What part of the game is that? Yes, taxpayer so, dollars ain't paying for your meal. Yeah, you, uh, you, you know. <laughs> the government's a good steward, a good steward of, of your money because I was like, first of all, we already make no money. Second of all, like you could have told me I had a pay. And you know what? I saw prices on the menu, but I thought that was just like for like <laughs> re- reporting purposes or something like that because no one asked me for a credit card or anything. I was, was like, you order your food, they bring your food, you eat it, you go on about your day. I'm like, you're going to wait until my last day here and then give me a bill? I was like, this is madness. Was it super inflated or was it just a regular sandwich price? It oh, wasn't even that memorable. Regular. I'm sure there was like a fuel, a fuel surcharge <laughs> or an in-air preparation oh charge. My goodness. But it definitely wasn't regular chicken sandwich prices. I mean, it wasn't completely prohibitive, but it was, I mean, I, I remember how much it is, but I was like, uh, yeah. I could have definitely brought my own turkey sandwich in a plastic bag. <laughs> Would they have let you? I'm sure you wouldn't even have been able to bring on food. I, I, don't, I, I really don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. I was just. Hey, that's a bill worth paying. A meal oh, off Air Force sure. One. Come on. Come for on. Sure. As sure. you're on your way out to go work for one of the biggest athletes in the world. So I think it was, yeah. it was okay yeah. to see that bill. And yes, indeed. yeah, and now that, that's definitely an experience. Thanks for that exclusive and, and those stories. I appreciate it. And, and talking a little yeah. bit about the White House and a little bit about, you know, politics in some capacity and how it relates to you. And I'm super excited um, for Kamala Harris to potentially be Absolutely. our next, our first female vice president and a minority as well. And, you know, she has a Southeast Asian background in addition to being black and I'm have Southeast Asian background. So I think representation matters and it's important. So in addition to everything else that, that they believe in and want to put forth for our country, I think representation is very important as well. And she's also an Howard alum. So you, you know, HG was on fire right now. (laughs) HG was on fire right now. It is so such an amazing time for Howard University. Um, so speaking of Howard, uh, huge, huge, huge shouts out to Mackenzie Scott for making the biggest donation in the university's history to Howard University, um, which is absolutely incredible. I think, you know, Howard's a very, um, it's an HBCU, it's a reputable, a lot of people know about it, but the endowments are not even close to comparable to, you know, some of your major universities out there. Um, so that donation was so significant 
for for the school. Um, Amazon just started Howard Entertainment wow. at Howard University, which is which is another amazing program. Um, Chase, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase uh, has um, uh, an advancing Black Pathways. You know, just really teaching financial literacy that's going on at Howard University right now. Mm-hmm. Howard University just got the first five-star recruit to ever um, commit to an HBCU ever. Following um, your footsteps, that's that was the. Yeah, I was I was first. Just wasn't yeah. five-star. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so many, so many amazing things. It's such a great time for HBCUs in general, but obviously I'm partial to Howard University. I don't know. I just think, I mean, Howard has so much significance. Founded in 1867. Um, it's, uh, I'm, I'm very happy for Howard right now. Howard definitely shaped me. Definitely was a life and game changer um, for me. Obviously, I've been to foreign universities, have a lot of mm-hmm. things to compare university experience against, but uh you know, and Howard's so interesting too because, you know, obviously it's a historically black university, but the African diaspora, right? Mm-hmm. Like when you really think about, um, you know, what it means and you think of one, let's just, if you take the U.S. and the difference between growing up in L.A. versus Atlanta versus, you know, New York versus Texas, Mm-hmm. And, you know, Louisiana, mm-hmm. Texas have their own thing that they used to call latex going on in, at Howard. And then, you know, a lot of individuals from Minnesota, you know, the, the Pacific Northwest. Like, mm-hmm. so that was all like very different types of situations. Then you had a lot of people from Puerto Rico and the Caribbean mm-hmm. um, that were coming to Howard. Um, and they had their own crew, their own language, their own, you know, things, you know, own way of. And they say, I eat your food. I'm like, what? You know, that was like their disc, right? Like, I was like, yeah. okay. Um, you had your Nigerians, you had your South Africans, um, your West Africans, um, you know, Ghana, Nigeria, Cameroon, the whole deal. And you had your North Africans, which, you know, it's almost like Middle East, like your Egyptians mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and that whole, whole deal. And so there was the gamut of, the African diaspora, and you know, and you know, we also, you know, had a few, it wasn't all black, but so you did have white students at Howard too, which is mm. super interesting. Yeah. The funny thing is, most of the white students were athletes, so wow. it was like a legit reverse thing going on. Like, <laughs> it was like for the most part, you would you could bet if you saw a white student walking around Howard University that they, they played a sport. Wow. Which, like, think of how. like crazy dynamics are you know Mm -hmm. like so especially for you personally with your personal experience from UCLA to absolutely yeah super 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 interesting um uh no environment like it exists in the in you know in the world I mean other other HBCUs but I think given the location of Howard it makes it even that much more um unique so it's awesome and and so you're doing things now. You mentioned a lot of different people and organizations and companies that are getting involved. What about you? You know, are you using some of your yeah. you know, vehicles? To- I think one is one. Stefan just donated a million dollars to to stand up and found a Howard golf program, which mm-hmm. was just absolutely dope and incredible. Um, he uh, 
brought him to Howard as we were premiering our documentary, Emmanuel. Mm-hmm. And it was just dope for him to see like that unique, infectious, energetic environment, right? Mm-hmm. So that was amazing. And then, um, but no, working on a few things with Howard. Um, one with the basketball program and then two, trying to do some things in the media space. Mm-hmm. I got a few, um, you know, I got some news I'll be dropping pretty soon. Okay. But, by the time this pod comes out, it'll probably be out there. But uh, yeah, so um, I know because so, uh, you put out press releases, you're in the news like nobody's business. Like I can't even probably post this tonight, and something else will be out there. Like you just you keeping it moving, that's for sure. And it's really it's really something to watch and to be a part of, and you know, and how you're who you're choosing to invest in and staying true to your authentic self and focusing on that representation, um, you know, and, and the storytelling behind it. So you're, you're a Toomey advisor and an investor, and I'm proud that we're a 99% minority owned company, you know, female led 25% female investors, 25% black owned. And that's important to me, but obviously how important is that for you to, align yourself with companies like us and just any others that you advise or you help with their storytelling, help with their brand building. I just talked to a a woman today. She has this app called Goal Setter Mm -hmm. and it's a financial literacy app for kids. And, um, you know, she's undergrad, graduate degree at Stanford, works at some of the you know biggest companies out there Nickelodeon uh, she's you know just super decorated right and this app is amazing and I was talking to her and she was just talking about how hard it is um black woman how hard it's been to like raise uh you know venture money right mm-hmm. I'm just like I'm like man why I'm like I mean I know why and I mm-hmm. and I've you know lived in the bay for quite some time and I, but it's just like in getting the resources you need to properly grow your company, right? Like it's very, it's a very arduous, it's a very difficult process. And um, it's not the easiest to get your hands on the capital you need to really have that runway to really grow and do what you need to do. And um, one, I love to me. Mm-hmm. Two, like I know, I know what's in you. You know what I mean? I know like, you know, I went to school with you. And uh, I've seen the way you've moved over the years. So I know it's like, you know, people talk about you invest in founders, mm-hmm. you know, that relentless nature about your ambition, like is like, you can never, you can never count somebody like that out, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, not only is it minority female led, which I think is also important because I think um, you think about investing your dollars, not only in something you believe in, even though you know, you know, the road's going to be tough and it's going to be hard to, to get done what you need to get done. But knowing like the dollars just aren't, aren't abundant and out there mm-hmm. the way they should be for some of these companies. So I try to plug in where I can and mm-hmm. be supportive, not only with my network and not only with my, you know, my knowledge, but also, you know, you got to put your money where your mouth is too, you know? Yeah. So that's, um that's, that's really important. And at least trying to do my part to give the support I can give when you know the premise is right, you know, the idea is right. And, but you know, the resources aren't always there to, you know, to properly build the company the way it should be built. So um, Uh, I'm here for it. 
I love that. And I appreciate that. And that's something big about you that I think is important to share because along your journey, as you're achieving your levels of success, you don't forget about anybody, you know, and you try and elevate everyone around you. That's, that's a true leader. And actually, I think I read someplace, uh, a quote from you was that um, the intersection between purpose and profit, that's where you, you want to live in, right? Mm -hmm. And purpose is more important if doing with purpose and doing the right way, then profit will follow. Right. So I think, uh, yeah, you definitely walk in that every single day. No, absolutely. I, I appreciate that. Like, I think, you know, people have been asking me what my definition of success is. And I think it's somewhere in that, within that framework of purpose and profit, right? Like how you, not everybody has the privilege and, and is blessed with the opportunity to experience profit from their purpose, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's like, hey, this is who I am. This is what I believe in. This is my purpose my purpose like this is what I feel like I'm about this is what I'm doing but can that can that drive can that can that drive profit for me you mm -hmm. know what I mean can that drive profit and most people it can't you know what I mean and then it's you know that sliding scale you can get closer and closer to it and I think this what's been so awesome about like a lot of the things I've had the privilege of working on and doing and being a part of is like really trying to get as close to possible to like living at that perfect intersection. Mm -hmm. I'm not all, all, I'm not all the way there, but like I keep getting closer and closer, you know, and, um, and really just being about what I believe in and being able to also make money doing so. so. Appreciate it. Well, yeah, no doubt. I know we could talk forever and ever and ever. So um, we'll, we'll wrap things up with uh, money ball questions. Okay. I call okay. it money ball rounds. My little ode to basketball, like a three point shooting contest. There's five bunny balls. So I'm going to give you five questions and okay. uh, they're rapid fire questions that you can answer just quickly, or <laughs> you can <Yeah>. elaborate, <laughs> elaborate as you're showing me your shooting form right now. I love it. Um, but yeah, you can, you can give me a quick one word answer or you can elaborate it, whatever you choose. So first one, favorite, favorite pair of Jordans. <laughs> Cause we talked a lot about style, but we didn't even go there. How at UCLA, that was your uniform. Sweatpants yeah. and Jordans. So. Yeah, it's easy. Um, cool gray 11s for sure. <laughs> I, I mean, one, the story, uh, you know, behind the 11 and, and Tinker being like chastised for putting patent leather on a basketball shoe. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, and that's the crazy thing about innovation. Right. And I have to always remember this because I am. I am. Um, I'm not like, a, you know, what does Jay-Z say? Uh, don't go with the flow, be the flow, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm a, like, hey, this is what I believe. And I think this will work. And this is what I'm going to do. Trends change all the time. But like, what makes sense? Like, what is it? Like, right. what makes sense for your audience, your consumer, et cetera, right? And you got to remember that when you're being the flow and not going with the flow, nobody's going to agree with you. People are most <laughs> comfortable with what they have a reference point for, what they've already experienced, what they've seen before, what's already worked, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the majority of the world. And then something new happens and it works and then everybody's on that. Right. But before that new thing works, everyone's like, ah, why would you do that? It doesn't make any sense. 
why would you put Pat Leather on a basketball shoe, right? And he's like, yo, this is going to be dope. I believe in this, you know, boom, boom, boom. And then, you know, everybody's killing him. And then if it doesn't work, you're probably going to get fired. But, you know, he believes in it. It works. And, you know, now it's one of the most iconic hoop shoes of all time. And within, you know, that Jordan 11, those cool grays are like the coldest ever. And which is crazy because I like, I have so many pairs of them and I never wear them what? because I just like them. They're so fresh. I just like If them. you have more than one pair and you're not even wearing them. Oh, God. I know. I need, I need to start wearing them. They're coming back out. So I'll, I'll probably get another pair and wear those. Okay. Okay. Um, another easy question for you. To me or Gatorade? Oh man, Woof, this is tough. No, <laughs> I mean, obviously going with Toomey for obvious biased reasons, but it's actually the truth as well. Uh, the reason Gatorade is not, you know, my preference is, you know, just given all of the, the myriad of ingredients in there. Like I'm very, very intentional about what I put into my body these days. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the key to healthy living is mind, body, and soul. And I have really started to take the mental space, um, really, you know, just try to be holistically healthy. And to me as like a sports drink, especially after I work out and knowing what's actually in my, my beverage is, is, is critical for me. Mm-hmm. And then you got that extra hook of the turmeric, like, you know, recovery, you know, and, uh, Making sure I say, you know, making sure I'm feeding my mind, body, and soul. Like it's, it's critical. So no, I'm I'm not just saying to me because I loved the brand and I love Shayna and I'm an investor and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but like no, I'm I'm really team to me. Like it's it's real. Appreciate it, and the kids yeah. love it too, which is great. Yeah, yeah. All absolutely. right. What's the biggest deal you've closed to date? Oh gosh. You can disclose the deal, the amount, the story behind it, whatever oh, you feel that's comfortable. Funny. Woo! <laughs> questions. I'm gonna go with the most significant deal was the deal with Sony Studios. Mm-hmm. And um founding unanimous and um having just an excellent partner like Sony and the executives there that um really helped us step into the space the right way and and held us accountable and making sure we were doing the right things and kind of, and just being invested in the success. But like, you know, Hollywood is not an easy business. Like, and I don't think there's anybody that would tell you it is. Mm -hmm. Um, So being able to have just such an amazing partner uh, like Sony and, you know, and them helping supercharge, you know, our growth um, was critical. And um, the deal took forever, so. It's like 13 months of like really making sure we have the right partner and coming in space the right way. So mm-hmm. hard work pays off. There you yeah. go. All right. Who is some, you've met a lot of, a lot of mm-hmm. very mm-hmm. famous people, very influential people, inspiring. Who is someone living that what you would like to meet that you haven't already? That I haven't met. Mm-hmm. You know, this might sound weird, but um, I, I'm really interested in people, right? Like really, really interested in people. And I watch like countless profile stories on not like famous people. Like I like to see the stories on like, you know, homeless people or 
you know, like, you know, the, the individual society doesn't really, um, you know, I, you might say I have forgotten about mm -hmm. and just understanding the stories, understanding um, the things they've had to overcome or, or, or trying to overcome or whatever the case might be. And I don't know, I might get, um, uh, people might feel like, be like oh, looking at me crazy for this answer, but like, it would definitely be somebody that's in prison or like, like um, maybe like somebody wrongfully accused of something that's done like, or is doing 30, 40 years and just got out mm -hmm. um, after being wrongfully accused or um, someone, you know, and, I, and when I think about mental fortitude mm -hmm. and what it would take to be um, locked up for that long for something you didn't do. Mm -hmm. And if you notice, and I don't know if they're just doing this for the cameras, that's why I love to meet them and like do a deep dive. But like, if you look at someone that's gotten out of prison after 20, 30 years for something they didn't do, many times it seems like it appears to be that they're at peace, right? Mm -hmm. Like at peace with the situation right and it's i don't think it's because of the money because no money can make up for that amount of time right and they've lost so many years to even spend the money right so um when you think about the mental fortitude it requires and the the balance and being able to center yourself um over those those years knowing you're in there for something for a crime you did not commit and then to finally be let out and kind of seem to have that sense of peace about yourself. Like I want to, I want like two, three hours with somebody like mm -hmm. that. Absolutely. I don't think that's weird yeah. at all. It sounds like a, a great start for another movie, you know, sounds like a great yeah. start for yeah. the next, next production that you got, that you could add to the incubation lab that you started to, to expand your footprint in telling stories. Right. So. Absolutely. All right. So the last, the last question that I ask every guest, and you hit on it a lot during this podcast, but it's, it's a twofold question, and it's what gets you up in the morning, and that everyone has a purpose, they just need to uncover it. So what is your purpose? Woo. You know. <laughs> All right. So what gets me up in the morning first? Um. It's, it, it might sound like a cliche, but like having another day is like, is really meaningful to me. And, uh, and you know, I've never had like a near death experience or anything like that, but it's like, you know, it's just like mm -hmm. another day to make my dreams come true. It's like, mm -hmm. I don't know. I feel in a real way. Like when I get up, I'm like, oh, let's get it. And then if I don't do what I'm supposed to do, I'm like, dang, you're on, you're on. Oh, all right, tomorrow, tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't get to everything, but like every day I wake up with this optimism where I'm like, yo, let's go, you know, mm -hmm. let's go. I shouldn't say every day because some days I'm like in a funky mood or I'm mad about something that's going on. But I still usually in the morning is a good time. I'm just like, it's a very optimistic time for me. So when I think about oh, what I'm trying to do, what I'm trying to accomplish and what I'm trying to get to, like the morning is a really dope time for me to like really think about that and really go attack it and really try to get it done. I always start off with a prayer. Um, and that's usually like a thank you prayer. Like, man, mm -hmm. uh, you know, thanking God for the, the opportunity, you know, to really, really get after it. Um, but anyway, once again, I'm really, I've been really taking my mental health seriously. And mm -hmm. um, 
purpose. You know, so this is this has been an evolving one. This has been an evolving one. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, it's multi-layered. I feel like on one, on one hand, I feel I'm really passionate about my story and the opportunities I didn't have and the doors that did not open for me and trying to figure out how to make my dreams come true because nobody could give me any answers. I'm like, this is what I want to do. Can someone help me get there, please? And I was like, yeah, network. I'm like, what, is, what does that mean when nobody calls you back? Like, how does that, how does that, how does that work, you know? Like, mm-hmm. so I'm very passionate about how to help. Like, I really try to break down every step of my process and I, I really get into the nitty gritty, like, cause no one gave me a real blueprint and there's no blueprint for success, but like, you know, how do I even get started? You know what I mean? How do, this is what I want to do. How do I get in there? Right. Um, and everybody gives you these generic, you know, this generic advice and it's usually the same advice and it, that advice never worked for me. So when I think about how I got to where I'm at, I'm like, I really start to dissect it, right? And mm-hmm. so one of my passions and when I think about purpose is like, how do you create, create opportunities, but also help give that wisdom to others, you know, and mm-hmm. give that knowledge. You know, my dad always says people perish for a lack of knowledge. And mm-hmm. I think it's, you know, I think information is so important. When I was interviewing for that first job at Nike, um, I had a guy, Brian McGovern, who was like, hey, if you get to a final interview, call me, I'm gonna help prepare you. And I was, my dream was to work at Nike and I was gonna prepare super hard, but I did not have the information that he gave me to prepare, you know? Mm-hmm. And without that information, I don't think I would have gotten the job because I didn't know how to prepare for the job, right? Mm-hmm. So access to information is so critical. So um, I really wanna, you know, try to get that information, try to open doors, all that, et cetera. But when I, when I think about, you know, the evolution, man, I, man, I really look at my, my sons as my purpose mm. for sure. Um, I think I, I've learned so many things navigating when it comes to these principles and like how to really, you know, get after it and, and really get to live in your passion, et cetera. And I don't know, I, I've become really passionate about helping mold sculpting and shape you know who they are so Mm -hmm. that's been that's been a really fun process and once again mind body and soul like Mm -hmm. you know we work out we read we you know we do it all we pray together like it's like it's a real you got a real academy going on over here (laughs) real mind body and soul university in here so yeah well yeah starting with your with your own family starting with your sons but obviously you know leaning into that and having it ooze through everything else that you do with your platform so yeah i appreciate it yeah absolutely well thank you so much jaron for being on the show and being real with us uh, i hope you find peace in your journey and thank you for sharing part of it with us today all right so can i get some mango to me thank you <laughs> well that's it for today i hope you enjoyed this episode Be sure to subscribe so that you can be the first one to hear new episodes dropping every Thursday. 
And in order for Real Shit with Shayna to continue spreading love through these diverse voices, please rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends. For a limited time, everyone that leaves a review will receive 50% off orders of Tumi water, turmeric for the mind, body, and soul, available at drinktumi.com. Check the show notes for more details. It's been real.